Happy Easter. So good to see you here this morning. Turning your Bibles to Colossians 2. We are going to read about Jesus has done this morning. Amen? And we are so glad you're here. Whether you're a longtime member or first-time guest, we're so grateful that you've come to worship Jesus, our risen Savior, with us this morning. You know, we've been on a, a, quite a journey as a church, as Jason alluded to. We've been on a 40-day journey of really focusing on the cross of Jesus. We've had a, we've had a regular daily devotional that we've been sending out on our app. Uh, we've had, had Bible studies throughout the weeks. We've had a sermon series looking at the cross. We've had Holy Week events, Stations of the Cross, Good Friday service, a Seder meal last night. And one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the cross is that we can never exhaust the meaning and the significance of it in our lives. And so what we want to do this morning is look at another dimension. And what we've been doing over the last seven uh, weeks has been looking at the various uh, ways in which Jesus accomplished something for us on the cross. And so we looked at, you know, we, we looked at the power of the cross, and we looked at the love of the cross. We looked at how Jesus changes our position uh, with, it, with the justification of the cross and the redemption of the cross and the propitiation of the cross. We looked at how he changes our condition out of the purification of the cross and how he changes our relationship with the reconciliation of the cross. And one of those things that is unique to a lot of those dimensions of the cross we've been studying and learning about week by week, a lot of times when we look at those, we look at the cross through this lens of an individual impact it has on my life. How, how the cross, Jesus died for me, for sinners. And one of the things that we did at Good Friday, and we want to do this, this, this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, is look at something, look at a dimension of the cross that is even more cosmic and more corporate than maybe we're used to hearing about. Yes, Jesus died on the cross to save people, but he also died to change the world, to change the universe. And one of the things that I hope we do this morning is understand the victory that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. You know, victory is one of those words that we use in, you know, we only use in a, in a couple contexts that make sense to us. And uh, some of those contexts might be, you know, we play games as, a, you know, I might have a game night as a family. There's one, there's one person who wins. There's one victor. We use the word victory when it comes to sporting events. Uh, sometimes we use the word victory when it comes to the political arena. Who's the victor of, of a political race? But the word that, that we probably use victory the most for is the word, is the context of military in war. When, when, there's, when there is a war going on, there's usually only one victor. And that's what, what Jesus is displaying for us in the word of God this, this morning. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul is going to use, in his letter to the, the people of Colossae, he's going to use some military termage. And one of the things that I want you to see is, is, is to see the, the context that Paul is writing. He's writing to a church that is becoming who's getting pulled away by various traditions and philosophies. And he's saying, listen, you've got to get back to the gospel. You've got to get back to Jesus. It's not a list of rules. It's not, it's not minimizing what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And so you see there in verse 8, as he's in chapter 2, as he is talking about the significance of how they are to live out their faith, he says a very interesting phrase in, in the beginning of verse 8. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit. Now that word captive is a military term. You would use that to use to describe if there was a military conflict, you know, most of the time they didn't just fight a war and then, okay, everyone go back to your sides. If you were in a battle and you were at war with another nation in those days, if you lost the battle, you were either dead or a prisoner. There was no in-between. There was no Geneva Convention. And so this, this idea of being captive is about understanding there is a war going on for your heart and your mind and your life. We see this again in the end of, of verse 15 when he says, um, by triumphing over them and him, talking about Jesus' triumph over his enemies. Now, again, the word triumph, we, again, we might use that word triumph in a very you know, sports way, and oh, they triumphed over evil, or they triumphed over their circumstances. But a triumph in first century context was like a military parade. It was, it was uh, introduced in the, in the culture of Rome, in the city of Rome, in the Roman Empire. And if there was a great general that won a, a significant victory, or, or later on if there was an emperor that did something great, what they would do is they would have a triumph. It was actually a noun. It was a, it was a word for a military parade. And what would happen is there would be this, there would be like this, this progression. Imagine going to a, sometimes we go to these parades when we were younger. Uh, I remember a Memorial Day parades when I, was, when I was a kid or July 4th parade. And you always had these little groups that go along. Well, in those days, in, the, in a military triumph in Rome, you would have the leading general and then his soldiers. And at the end, you would have the captives. And what, he's, what, what Paul is trying to say in this context of this passage, he's saying Jesus is the one who triumphed over evil. Jesus is the one who triumphed over force. Don't let anyone take you captive by the enemies that you and I face, you need to make sure that your victory, that Jesus' victory is your victory. And that's what we have to understand this morning, that the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross, he invites his victory for us to partake in it. It can become our victory. That's the one main idea I want you to come away with today. Jesus' victory can be your victory. Jesus' victory is my victory. Jesus shares what he accomplished for us on the cross. Now, I only cried one time while watching a sporting event. And it wasn't really crying. It was more like I teared up a little bit. But it was the fall of 2004. Now, if you understand, if I say fall of 2004, every single Red Sox fan knows what I'm talking about. Can I get an amen from anybody out there? All right. <laughs> I, I, uh, when I was 10 years old, um, we had moved to, from the Washington, D.C. area up to northeast Pennsylvania. And uh, I didn't really have a, a favorite baseball team yet. And I was, you know, uh, but so one of my friends said, hey, all your baseball cards are worth money. And so, you know, like any other red-blooded American kid, I collected baseball cards. And I had these shoe boxes full of baseball cards. And I've been collecting them for probably four years and so I remember going to my little, little baseball card store in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. It was called Left Field. And I went there and I bought some, some uh, those wax packs of tops. And I bought a pricing guide, a Beckett pricing guide. And I remember going home. I'm so excited to find out what, what the value of these cards were. And I'm just kind of trying to find them. And, you know, oh, this one's worth $1. Put it in this pile. $2. Put in this pile. Common card. Chuck it over here. You know, stay in the box. I don't really care what happens to you. But then I came across my most valuable card. I had a 1983 Wade Boggs rookie card that was worth $35. 
Now, in 1986, as a 10-year-old, to realize this card is worth $35, I'm like, oh, the, sun, the heavens were, o- were opening up, sun was shining. I'm like, this is the most valuable thing in my life. I bought one of those special protector things. And, and what I started doing, because I knew this, the way baseball cards work, if your player did well, your card went up in value. So I became a Wade Boggs fan. And this was before the, I'm going to date myself, but I remember having, getting the newspaper and find, you know, looking up the stats every Sunday, looking up, where's Wade Boggs in the batting? You know, he was an amazing hitter for the Boston Red Sox, third baseman, and uh, started following the Red Sox in 1986. Now, here's the thing. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. If you're a Red Sox fan, you understand the torture, the torment for decades, the curse of the Bambino, that year after year, there was going to be a way that they would just draw you in. We might, we might win. We might win. Yeah, kill you. You know, they would just, they would give you enough, they would give you enough victory to have you hope this might be the year and they would rip out your heart. So 1986, I'm watching and my, my team has made it to the World Series and Bill Buckner happens. And, I, and I'm learning over the years in my fandom what I really signed up for. I signed up for torture. I, I signed up f- for just for pain. Year after year, watching them fail miserably and fail so spectacularly. I mean, all of us knew Paul Pedro. Please, Paul Pedro in 2003. But then 2004 happened. And in 2004, the Red Sox were down three games to zero in the American League Championship Series to their hated rivals, the New York Yankees. Now, I grew up in Pennsylvania. There were Yankee fans all around me. And I was, I was like a lone little island. And so to live through all those years of Yankee victories and Yankee World Series, they're up three games to nothing. And they, you know, it's like this, it's just another year, another disappointment. But then guess what happened? They won four games in a row. They, they had beaten, they, they, they had overcome the curse. They made it to the World Series and swept the, the St. Louis Cardinals. And I'm sitting there at around 11.27 at night in my living room, and I'm tearing up. They, they had finally won. They had finally over. They were on the brink of death again, and they had done something that no baseball team had ever done. And I'm, I, I had little children, I had babies in the time, and I'm just cheering, I'm yelling, I'm in, you know, really quiet, you know. They'd finally won a World Series. And the next morning, I tell, I tell Liz, my wife, I'm like, we did it, we won the World Series. And she's like, why are you saying we? You didn't do anything. And if you're a fan, you know what I mean. You, when you cheer for a team, that team becomes your team. And when they win, you win. And when they lose, you lose. But here's the thing. And even in greater way, a more powerful way, a more significant way, Jesus' victory on the cross, he invites us into that victory. Jesus' victory can be your victory. And in the victory that Jesus won for us, he invites us, and we see this in verse, look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2. For in him, talking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now listen, what these verses are saying is this. 
I'm not just making this up and saying, hey, Jesus' victory is your victory. In this text, what what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, as much as the fullness of the deity of, of, of Christ, as full as he is fullness of deity, the fullness of Jesus you have for you. That means that everything Jesus accomplished can be yours. This idea of being united in Christ is complete and it is total. And so I want you to see what what Paul does in the remaining verses of this text to help you understand the victory that we have in Christ. He's saying, don't let anyone take you captive. You have some enemies out there. You have some enemies that want to destroy you, that want to captivate you, that want to control your life, that want to take away the goodness that God wants to give you. Don't let it happen. And so we see what Jesus does. And I want you to, to, uh, to think about what Jesus went through on the cross as we read these verses. Let's start in verse 12. It says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, these verbs, there's a lot of verbs that Paul is using in this text. And if you notice something about these verbs that Paul is using, these are verbs that we could say were used, are used to describe Jesus' experience on the cross, right? Jesus was killed. He was dead on the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Jesus was stripped of his clothing, Before he went to the cross, Jesus was left to open public shame. Jesus was triumphed over by the religious and by the governing authorities. But Paul is actually saying when Jesus, what Jesus went through and experienced on the cross, the nailing of his hands and feet, the the, the public exposure of his nakedness, the, the, the victory that they thought they had over Jesus, what Paul is saying is that Jesus actually turned the tables on the enemy on the rulers. That when when Jesus went to the cross, even though he was nailed, there was something even greater that was nailed. Even though he was killed, there's even something greater that was killed. Though though he was stripped, there was even something greater that was stripped. Though though he was left publicly exposed, there's something even greater that was publicly exposed. Even though he was triumphed over in that moment, there was something even greater that he triumphed over. Jesus is turning the tables in this, in this text. There's something that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, and that is victory. The victory over all of our enemies, our greatest enemies, our common enemies. Listen, all of, all of us in this room, and whether you go to church or don't go to church, whether you're spiritual or unspiritual, religious or non-religious, whether you are, I don't care, the color of your skin, the, your age, your socioeconomic background, how long you've lived in Charlotte, how long you haven't, we all have common enemies. We have a common enemy of death. We have a common enemy of, of our sin. And we have a common enemy of the devil. And that is the victory that Paul is saying we have in Jesus. Jesus' victory can be our victory. 
And so I want us to see these three victories that we have, the victory over death, the victory over our debt, and the victory over the devil that we see here in the text this morning. Let's first look at our victory over death. Look what it says again in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses. Now that is a phrase that Paul uses many times in his writing to describe our state before our faith in Christ, that by nature we are dead in our trespasses. Now, here's the question if you've ever wondered, why why are we described as dead in our trespasses if I'm a living and breathing human being? Because there's this term dead, Paul is referring back to something that a significant event that happened in the very beginning, the very first story of the word of God we find in the Garden of Eden. And we know that God created this beautiful paradise, this garden paradise for the, for the first two humans, for Adam and Eve. And he placed them in the garden and he gave them every benefit that any human being could ever have. They were perfectly, had harmony with God himself. They had perfect harmony with each other and with creation and with themselves. And yet in that moment, God says, there's one thing I want, I don't, I, I want you to do. Don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the moment you eat of this tree, what does he tell them? You will die. And so we don't know how long it goes from Jesus giving or God giving that command to them meeting the serpent at that tree. But there's, there's, a, there's a tempter and there's a deceiver. And the devil shows up as a serpent and he says, listen, if you eat of this tree, you will not really die. God's trying to keep you from something. And so what do they do? They took of that fruit. And, and death happened in two ways in that moment. What happened in that moment, what Jesus said, when God said, you will surely die, what, what he meant was there would be an immediate spiritual death. Death simply means separation. And, and spiritual death is, is our souls separated from, from the heart of God. There was a spiritual separation that took place. But then there's also physical death. And we know the moment that that, 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 that fruit was eaten, that, that people began to physically die. When Paul says you are dead in your trespasses, what he's saying is there is a spiritual death that every single human being is born into. We are born into spiritual death because of our state of sin. But there's also another reality, that there is a physical death that you and I will all face. Death is the curse of all humanity. All of us face death. We can't escape it. You know, just recently, Liz and I, we went on a, uh, a trip together, and I, was, I went to a conference out in Denver, Colorado, and, and uh, I paid to have Liz join, join me, and so we were going to be gone for the week, and all my kids are a little bit older, and they're 20 and 18 and 17, and so this is the first time we were going to leave them by themselves, and so we're having a conversation, hey, make sure you do the, all these things, and, and, and for some reason, the topic came up, what, what would happen if you died? And so we started having a conversation. Okay, here's, here's where the will is. And here's, you know, here's what you need to contact this person for the life insurance. And you know, they, then we got to the real important things like who gets the dog when, when we die? <laughs> who, get, who gets the most money, Dad? You know? And, and we're, we're having this conversation. And listen, it was a, it's, it's a good conversation. It's an important conversation to have with your family. But when you think about it, that which, which feel like death, death is normal for us. We have to have that conversation. And maybe you're sitting here this, this morning, you're saying, well, I, I hate to think about death. I can't even think about death. death. Death scares me. Listen, death is an enemy for all humanity. But for the Christian, 
for the one whose victory is in Christ. Death is merely a paragraph in our story. It's not the final chapter. See, for the Christian, though we were, verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. See, the victory that Christ won over death through his resurrection is our victory. That we, death, death is, a, is a pause. Death is a moment. But death doesn't have the final word over our lives. And that's the hope that you and I have. That's our victory. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, it's a great, great chapter that describes the, the state of, of our of our faith, and Paul is talking actually about the resurrection in this passage, the resurrection of humanity, because here's what you and I have to remember, that our final state is a resurrection. It's a physical, bodily resurrection, that when we die, that is not the end of our, of our existence. Our, our final resting place is not heaven. It is a very material new heaven and new earth. And so there's going to be a moment in all of, all of us who are in Christ that we will put on a new body that has been perfected. It's just going to have the same type of body that Jesus had in his resurrection. Look at verse 54. As Paul is describing the way we should view death as, as followers of Jesus. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. He's talking about when we put on our resurrected body. See, what we have right now is the perishable. It's mortal. But one day we will put on imperishable and immortal. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, you don't have to face death with fear. We're all going to die. In a hundred years, no one in this room is going to be alive. Right? But, but, but here's what we all know. If we have Christ, if we are in Christ, we put, place our faith in Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, then our death is merely temporary. That's the victory that we have. The victory of Jesus is our victory. And he's given us victory over death. There's a second victory he's given us, and it's our victory over death. Turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, victory over our debts. Look what he says in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, Jesus, Jesus was, was accused and convicted of crimes he never committed. And he paid the penalty for, for something that he never did. But when he was being nailed to the cross, there was something even greater being nailed to the cross, and that is our debt. Paul uses a lot of very unique words in this verse, uh, talking about this word like record of debt, underline record of debt in legal demand. That word record of debt uh, uh, is a very unique word that is, was used in the first century Roman culture to describe Someone make, writing a contract saying that you owed money for something. Now, that makes a lot of sense to us because we do the same thing today. You and I, we sign contracts all the time. I'm going to purchase this house 
for this price. I'm signing these documents saying I owe you this money. You sign documents like that when you purchase cars and vehicles. Okay, I'm buying the car for this much. I'm signing this document saying this is the amount of money I'm going to owe you. You do that for school. There's all these kinds of things. We still do that today. And Paul's saying there's something that there's a record of debt that we had. There's legal demands. Now, here's the question. What it talks about in, verse, in the end of verse 14, this, these legal demands, what is that? What, is it, what are the legal demands that are upon you and me? And, and theologians basically say there's basically two possibilities of these legal demands. The first possibility is he's talking about there is an agreement that God made with all of humanity with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he said, here's the contract. Here's the relational contract or the, what we, the Bible would call a covenant. Here's the covenant I'm making with you. If you do this, then I will do this. And so it could be the legal demands might be, this is what we agreed upon, upon our, our, our relationship, but we didn't do it. Or it's referring to the, the Mount Sinai, the, the actual giving of the old covenant. When Mo- Moses went on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and, and to the, is, uh, the nation of Israel that was meeting at the foot of Mount Sinai to be that God was creating a covenant with them. And so it's either one of those two legal demands. Now, that's where legal demands is mentioned one other time in Scripture, and it's in Ephesians chapter 2, talking about legal demands and referring to the law, the ordinances of the law of Moses. So I believe it's talking about the, the, the Ten Commandments of the law. But here's what Paul is saying, and here's what we need to understand. So many times in the Scriptures, we talk about that, that God, that what Christ died for was for our sins, for our trespasses. That there's things that we did against God and sinning against him. But there's another way to look at what we owed God. And that is we owed him righteousness. Not only, not only did we offend God with our sin, but we owed him righteousness. We made a covenant agreement saying, God, this is, I will worship you as the one true God because this is who you are. This is, you're worthy of this. And I will honor my parents and I will not kill and I will not steal and I will not commit adultery. This is the, these are the righteous requirements that God has for all mankind. But here's what you and I know. We couldn't keep that payment. Nothing we could do could pay that off. Jesus used a parable in Matthew chapter 18 to describe the debt that we owe, the, right, the debt of righteousness that we owed. Uh, and he, and he, Jesus in this parable says there was a king and he had two servants and this one servant owed him, uh, in, a, in a today's equivalent would be billions of dollars, but the king forgave it. You see, when, if we were to look at our sin, a lot of times we look at our sin saying, man, we, we have offended God and God's, Jesus' blood has erased our sin offenses. But not only that, Jesus' blood and his righteousness gives, pays the full amount of, what, of the righteousness that we owe. See, we were doubly condemned because we could not keep our commitment to righteousness and we kept offending and sinning against God. But Jesus paid it all. When we say Jesus paid it all, he paid our debt. He paid for our sins. He paid everything. And let me tell you something. There's nothing like being debt-free. Amen? Now, I, I know my, my wife and I, when we first got married, we, we didn't know about Dave Ramsey, but we discovered Dave Ramsey about a decade into our marriage. And praise God, we did. We were horrible with our finances. And we just started learning about how to manage money and, and how to pay off debt and, and, and all of these wonderful biblical principles. 
But, but I'm telling you what, when you, have those, when you have those credit card bills, when you have those car payments, there's something in us. When that debt and the last thing is paid off, man, there's something about that. In fact, Dave Ramsey, if, you're follow, if you follow Dave Ramsey at all uh, and listen to his show, a lot of things that he does on his show is he has this moment where it's called the debt-free screen. Are you familiar with that? And people will call in, you know, hey, Dave, I was $250,000 in debt, and, and we worked for three years. We paid all this off. Or I was $35,000 in debt. We paid it off. And then, and then he, he gets them to share their story, and then he says, okay, now you, you can do it. And then he's like, they scream, we're debt-free. Like, yay. And you're seeing they're like, I still got payments, you know? <laughs> There's something about being debt-free. And, and, and if, you got a, if you got letters in the mail this week and said your car payment is gone, your school payment is gone, your mortgage has been, it's been canceled, all of these debts, they're canceled, they're canceled, they're canceled. There, there would be a sense of joy that you would have because of your, your debt, your IOU being canceled. How much more then? Should we respond to Jesus? We should walk in here every single Sunday screaming, I'm debt free. We should wake up every single morning saying, I am debt free. Listen, the world and religion and the powers over you will try to make you feel like you owe God something. You better perform for God. If you want to achieve God's acceptance, you got to perform all these deeds. That's not the way of the gospel. We are debt-free. Look at what it says again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The way of Christ is your debt is paid. Now, does Jesus still want your obedience? Absolutely. He desires our righteousness. He desires our obedience, but he wants it to come from a heart that says, I don't owe God anything. It's been paid. That my obedience and my righteousness comes from this, this freedom, from this love that I have for him. And it's that kind of love and it's that kind of heart that actually gives, gives credence to a greater righteousness. If you're trying to earn or perform for God to get you to accept you, that's, there's no love in that. There's only fear. And that's not the way of the gospel. Jesus came and he, paid the, he, pay, he gave us the victory over our debt. So not only do we have the victory over death, we have our victory over death, over debt. And there's a, third, there's a third victory that he's also given us. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, when you first read that verse, many times you might be tempted to think he's talking about the rulers and the authorities that, that put him on the cross, the Roman government, the, the Jewish religious leaders. And I believe in some ways that is true, but that is not the, the direct meaning of this verse. In fact, if we go back to in the beginning of, of Colossians, there is a theme of spiritual authority that, that, that Jesus' death overcame for us that there's a victory over the devil. And, and I want you to see this. If you look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. 
Paul is saying this, and the Bible clearly teaches this, that when you, when you are born as a human being, there, there's a spiritual, there are two spiritual kingdoms that exist in this universe. It's the kingdom of darkness, which is led by Satan, and it's the kingdom of God. And you can only belong to one or the other. There's no in-between. But there's a great cosmic battle going on. We see this over and over. Look again in verse 8. I just read this. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That word elemental spirits, is a, that's a spiritual warfare term. Talking about that, that in those days, nations, you know, when you belong to a, a nation or a city-state, you belong to a religion. You had no choice. Religion was tied to the state, and all of these nations had their own deities. They had their own gods. And we might look at that as very primitive. You know, we're 2,000 years removed from that, and man, how primitive that was and how weird that was. But you have to understand something, that these deities that they worship were real spiritual beings. You might read about, oh, the Baals and the Astros and Molech in the Old Testament, and just thinking they just made these things up and, and they weren't really real. No, no, no. Here's what you have to understand. Those are real gods. Those are real demonic powers. And, and the demonic powers, whether, they, whether, it was, whether it was Jupiter or Zeus or, or Aphrodite, these are, these are demonic powers behind these false gods. They are real. They are real. And when you see rulers and authorities over and over again, it's used to describe the spirit world and the spirit realm. He says it again in verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Whenever you see rule and authority, that is Paul describing the spirit realm. He says it in Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against rulers and authorities. There is something that Jesus accomplished on the cross that overpowered, that stripped these demons of their power. And Jesus said, no, 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 the world is now mine. See, we, go, we can go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go all the way back to Genesis again. In Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent deceived humanity, there's something in that moment that placed humanity under the authority of this domain of darkness. And, and, and God, when he's condemning the serpent in Genesis 3.15, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. That's a foretelling of what Jesus is going to do to crush the head of the serpent. But one of those that, that verse describes is there's a battle, there's a war going on, generation after generation between the forces of God and the forces of darkness. In, in Exodus chapter 12, we didn't, uh, last night when we had our Seder meal, we read through Exodus 12, which describes the Passover. And in the Passover, there's this, um, we, you might skip over, but Exodus 12, verse 12, as God is describing what's going to happen at the Passover, that his, his, this angel will come and will pass over them. God makes his claim, I will come and I am going to bring judgment against the gods of Egypt. You see, it wasn't just Pharaoh that was enslaving the children. It was all those spiritual realm deities that wanted God's people enslaved as well. See, there is a war going on, and you and I are born into it. We don't, we, we don't have to, we, none of us can wave the flag of Switzerland like, I don't want to get involved. You know, like that's, it's not possible. 
you are born under within the kingdom of darkness, or you're born within the kingdom, or, or you're born again into the kingdom of heaven. And that's where our citizenship lies. And so there's these, these descriptors all throughout the Bible that talk about this power, these dark powers. In fact, in John 12, 31, and in John 16, 11, Jesus talking about what he's going to accomplish on the cross, he's talk, he refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. That there's a domain, there's a spiritual domain, and what he's about to do is he's about to, he's about to destroy what the, what the ruler of this world wants to do. He's about to disarm them. He's about to unclothe them. He's going to put them in open shame. He's going to triumph over them. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as, as 21st century Americans? You know, we're not used to thinking and talking about the spirit realm a lot. But we come into a room like this, and, and the Bible's very clear about it. And if you opened your eyes to see it, there is a, there's a spiritual realm that exists. And the forces of darkness want to do two things to you. They want to do two things to every single human being, man, woman, child. I don't care what nation you're a part of or what color of your skin you have or how educated you are. They want to do two things to you. They want to make you blind to the truth and they want to keep you in bondage to sin. That's what they want to do to you. And the only weapon that they have is lies. The only weapon that the enemy has is lies. And so what they do is they want to keep you blind to the truth. They want to keep you blind to the reality. I want you to see this in Ephesians. Just skip over a couple passages. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. I want you to see this realm that's at, that's at work in, in, in every single human being. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, we'll have these verses on the screen. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's the same line that Paul uses in Colossians 2, verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a war going on, people. And the enemy wants to keep you in bondage. They want to keep you blind. And so, so, so here's the question. I'm reading this. I'm studying this week. And, I, and I'm reading this. He disarmed the rulers. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. Yeah, Jesus, do it. Well, here's the question I have. Why does it look like the enemy seems to be winning? This is the question for every Christian. This is, for, this is the question for all of us that claim Jesus as Lord. And I, and I think there's a number of reasons for why we see the enemies and the, the kingdom of darkness seems to be advancing, especially amongst our younger generations. I think the number one thing is, is we ignore the reality of this conflict. We ignore the reality of this conflict. We, we don't see the forces of darkness that are working inside our homes. You don't see it working inside of us. We want to excuse things. You want to call things addictions. I'm not saying addictions don't exist. What I'm saying is we, we've got to be aware of the enemy's desire to steal, steal, kill, and destroy every single person in this room. This is what he does. We've got to be aware of this conflict. We've got to be aware of his weapons, his schemes. Even Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the schemes, the strategies of the enemy. You need to be aware of the ways in which he's, he's blinding people. And the question, the other question is, what, what, what's going on here? Why does it seem to be like the enemy's winning? 
Because if you read Revelation 12, Revelation 12 is a very poetic way of looking at the conflict between the forces of, of God and the forces of, of the devil. One of the things it says there towards the end of the chapter, it says a couple of things. It says the enemy that the devil, the serpent or the dragon has, has chosen to make war on the, with the offspring of God. See, God is, Satan is at war with you. Because he, this is what it also says, because he knows his time is short. He knows he's defeated. He knows he will lose this, this war. But he wants to take down as many people as possible as he can. You know, there's, there's this moment that happened in our history. Maybe you never heard about it, but after World War II, um, especially in Europe, we had victory in Europe and we overthrew the Nazis and, and Hitler and all his goons, a lot of them committed suicide or were imprisoned. And, and uh, it was a beautiful day to see the, the righteous, righteous uh, e- conquer over evil. But I'm not sure if a number of years following after the victory in Europe, there were a lot of terrorist attacks that happened within Germany and Austria. And they were done by a group of young people that had grown up within the Nazi regime where that were part of the Hitler youth. And they committed these acts of terrorism against the, 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 against the victors. Because their minds had become so corrupted, they couldn't imagine that, that the Third Reich had actually ended. They, they couldn't believe that they had actually lost the war. They kept believing that there would be a resurrection of what Adolf Hitler had promised them. They were delusional. And what, they, what, what, the, what the countries of righteousness had to do is had, they had to confront them and they had to show them, no, we are the victors. We have the authority. We have the power. And that is what Jesus has given to you. Jesus has given to you his authority and his power. Remember he tells his disciples at the, before he ascends into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. See, we now have to start living with this authority. We have to start understanding the reality of the battle that you and I are in. We have to decide who we're going to serve, and we have to decide this. Here's the biggest decision that you, have to, you and I have to decide. In. Are we going to live in victory? Are you and I going to live in victory? Because th- there's been too, too many years, too many decades, too many generations that we've allowed the strongholds and the enemy of Satan to have his way in our life. You know, I'm so excited about, we're about ready to do this Dad University and every week for the next seven weeks, starting this Thursday, we've got older, uh, gen- wise, not all, wiser, gentle, more mature men in our church. They're going to be sharing what God has taught them. And, and I'm, I've got one of those weeks. And the week that I teach, I, I'm gonna, I, I, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about generational sins. Because there's a lot of generational sins that have been passed down to you. And whether you're a dad or a young person, you need to understand you've inherited something. You've, been, you've walked into a war zone. Parents, you gotta, you got to understand your children were born into a war zone. You need to understand how you can have victory over sin so that they can have victory over sin. Jesus, Jesus won that victory for you. There's no conflict. There's no sin. There's no stronghold. There's no addiction. There's nothing that the enemy can do to you that you don't have a power that is greater than it. And that is what you need to be walking in. That is the truth. Listen, some of you believe this is just my life. This is just the way I am. This is just the way we are. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The enemy wants to keep you blind and wants to keep you in bondage. And you have to start saying, I'm not living like that. 
If Jesus disarmed, unclothed, stripped naked the principalities and powers, if he put them to open shame, if he triumphed over them, Jesus is leading a military parade in our world today. We just got to get behind him and celebrate. That is what Jesus has given to you. And we need to start living like that. Start claiming the victory you have in Christ. Start living in that, in that wonderful joy of victory. You know, when I was going back to 2004, which was 18 years ago, I feel so old. When I, was, I mentioned this, you know, first service, I'm like, and that was 18 years ago. Okay, wait. 18 years ago, when the Red Sox won that World Series, you know what I did? I acted like they won. Called up all my friends. Hey, did you see who won? Right? I, bought, I went online. I bought two different, you know, shirts to wear. I, I, was, I, was, I bought the box of Wheaties. We're saying, you know, I didn't know if it would be another 80 years. I'm like, I have to prove to my children the Red Sox actually won. I, I, I walked. I lived in that victory. And here's, the, here's what's so great. Because in every year in sports, guess what? There's another victor. You got to start all over again every year. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. There's a victory that took place 2,000 years ago that's just as powerful and just as meaningful and just as good as it was then. That's what we need to be walking in. That's how we need to be walking. Don't let anyone take you captive. Whether it's spirits, whether it's humans, human tradition, there's a victory that we need to be walking in through Jesus. Last two questions, then we're done. Number one, is Jesus' victory your victory? Is Jesus' victory your victory? Again, Jesus won this victory for us. But just because he won this victory for us does not mean that, that, that his victory is our victory. What we need to do to have his victory applied to us is by placing our faith and trust in him and what he has done. You know, if you, if you look at all of the verbs starting in, starting in verse 10 and down, every single verb is what God's doing. God's doing this work. God's doing it. All, the only verb that refers to humanity what we're doing, it says you are dead in your trespasses. The only thing we're doing is deadness. That's the only action we're performing in this whole issue of salvation. We're dead in our trespasses. God's doing all the work. But are you trusting in that work for your salvation? You know, if you have questions about what it means to have victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the devil in your life, man, we'd love to talk with you. We have a prayer team out in the lobby and in the prayer room that have little red lanyards on. Whether you want to talk to me or another one of our pastors, if you have questions about how to have peace with God, talk to us. Is Jesus' victory your victory? Number two, are you living in victory? Are you living in victory? Are you waking up every day screaming, I'm debt free? Are you, are you living without fear of death? Are you walking in the power and the authority that you have over the devil? You start living like it. It's been given to us through Christ. If his victory is our victory, let's live in victory.